0: I've decided I'm just not going to say anything. I'm going to say good morning and that's it. And I let him and he wandered around the studio for a while and he walked out the door and I'm like, huh? Okay. (laughs) Still not the magic formula. Third day, he comes in with an entourage. He's got three or four people with him and they're talking in a a language. I clearly don't understand. And there's some pointing and and then this gentleman walks up to me, whose name was Ed. And he says, the general would like to purchase several pieces of bronze. My name is Tammy Tappan, and I am an equestrian artist.
1: Yeah, I think that's an amazing uh, career choice. I'm curious, like, we talked a little bit about it, but I'm curious from your perspective, how did you take the jump into being an artist? I know you you haven't been in a professional artist for, for your whole life.
0: Right, right. Well, I'll tell you, one of the biggest struggles when you make that decision is actually defining yourself as an artist because I've been creative my whole life. I went to art school when I was you know, 18, 19, um, but got a real job, as my dad would say. And so, so my background is in graphic design and marketing, and I own a sign company. And then in 2016, there were some life events. You know, we all have them. Mine was a divorce. And I really had to sit back and think about what I wanted to do next. And I was, you know, pushing that magic number of 50. And, and it kind of occurred to me, if not now, when? So I, I Googled equine sculpture, which I don't think I've ever done in my life. Um, The Googling part of that. And I had also never sculpted anything. And up popped a five-day workshop in Scottsdale, Arizona. And I thought to myself, well, I don't have anything else to do. So I I literally bought a uh, salvage title RV uh, that leaked in places you can't even imagine a vehicle could leak, like through... (laughs) through the lights, through the, the electrical switches. So the only solution then was to drive to the desert where it didn't rain. And I took that workshop. And in the first, I would say four hours, it kind of hit me. I'm like, oh my gosh, how did I not know that this existed? Like working in the clay three dimension. And um, after five days, I was just hooked. So that, that was the beginning of this journey for me as an artist, and at that point, I still didn't consider myself an artist.
1: I think you could make the argument that the beginning of it all was when you started the sign company, right? Because when we chatted, something that I, that came off uh, really impressive was the fact that you've never worked for anyone else. So t- taking a, taking a step back, like why did you start a sign company? How did that business get started? What's the story there? Because I think that's the pre yeah. the prequel, right?
0: Right, right. Right. And I look back now and I think if I hadn't have done that, I probably wouldn't have made the leap because what it taught me. So the prequel to that is, first of all, I'm a 4-H kid. I grew up with, I have two sisters. We all had those rotten little ponies and you know, we did the 4-H gig. And then I rode for my equestrian team in high school, but I'd always had a creative background. And, uh, both my mother and my grandmother on both on both sides of my family were artists or creative. And so I decided in high school that I wanted to be an artist and went to art school. I went to Kendall in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is tied to the Chicago Institute of Art. And, and I was in my second year and there was this voice in the back of my head that was my father speaking and going, art is a wonderful hobby, but what are you going to do to make a living and how are you going to support yourself? And, you know, cause I think that the preconceived notion with most people is that um, the starving artist concept, it's, you know, you can be exceptional and, and, and not make any money. And then after you die, you know, it's that, that whole story, mm-hmm. which, which is a myth. So I, here I am and I'm in art school. I'm in the illustration program. And, um, and I, I decided that I wasn't going to keep doing it. Um, there, there was a, I had to take a class on lettering of all things. And I had been lettering dealership car, car dealership windows as a way to pay my bills at, Mm -hmm. at the, at college. And, and, you know, when you're 19 and you can back in that day, it was 1986, 87. You could make thousand dollars a week or $1,500 a week. You were like, you know, rich. (laughs) So, so I I did it. I dropped out of art school and opened up a sign company. That was kind of the, the start of it. And, um, took me a couple of years, built it up. By the time about twenty five years into it, forty to fifty employees, that I bought my building, and you know did a lot of a lot of carving of wood signs and vehicle graphics. So when I look back, what um, one of the puzzle pieces was that I, ha- I learned how to sell and market to a client base and I learned how to understand costs of manufacturing. Um, you know, so all of those things play into my current career as an artist. You know, you really have to understand that your most important asset is time and how to manage your time. And then what your costs, of your materials are, and all those little invisible things like driving, you know, for me as a sculptor, if I do a large piece, say six foot tall, I have to drive it across the country to a foundry to get it produced. Well, that takes me three or four days. That's part of my cost. So mm. I think that that having been in manufacturing and really had to understand the production side of things has helped me as an artist.
1: Wow. that's that, Yeah, that's so interesting. And so there's probably more
0: information we're looking for, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, this is perfect. I, I find this topic the most exciting for me. It's like how how does what you're doing now set you up for what you will do next, even if you don't know what that is?
0: Yeah, you don't know. Well, and I think what for me, it's like, okay, I started sculpting when when I kind of sat back and said, well, maybe I should go back to the arts. Uh, the first thing you think is, well, what am I going to paint? What am I going to sculpt?" It was never a question for me. It was, well, of course it's going to be a horse, you know, which brings me all the way back to my roots and, you know, having just come through a divorce, it's like, I think that I look to the horse as like, it, it's a, it's a healing place. It's comfortable. I am, you know, I am a horse person to my core, even though at that moment I didn't own horses, Uh, but somehow the being able to sculpt them and paint them brought me some peace of mind so it helped me transition
1: you said something interesting like you're a horse person to your core what what exactly does that mean to you like what does that mean what does it mean to be a horse person that's like another theme of this podcast is what does it mean
0: yeah what does that mean I think Think that there are those of us who are just at our deepest soul level connected to the horse and it's interesting because like I said I grew up with two sisters we all had horses as kids um and I am the only one that kept my kept the horses you know past high school and involved um so they've been a central theme in my life for ever Uh, my my youngest sister came back to it um about five years ago maybe maybe a little longer than that 10 years and her daughter is a rider, and she's Mm -hmm. actually interning for Casey Deary over at uh the Deary Performance Ranch in Texas Mm -hmm. that is a kid who literally they come out and the first time they see a pony they're like you know you can't you can't help it they're, they're they're so yeah and then you know there is no fear in in real horse people there's no fear we should probably get afraid at some point as we get older and wiser but that doesn't seem to be the case <laughs> so
1: yeah i i i was looking through your site preparing for this call and you in the about the a letter from the artist in the about section of your website you say I enjoyed capturing the spirit of the horse and the connection between horse and rider through a variety of mediums. That must yeah. be an impossible task. Like how how do you how do you do that? Like how do you capture that 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 connection?
0: That is the it's funny because I I don't think I do it. It's not intentional. Mm. I, I'll start with that. Like when I first started, what was important was accuracy, accuracy of the anatomy, the, the gestures, the posture, you know, that those type of things. And the more I did it, the, it was, it was weird. It was like all of a sudden because of my technique and I use a very, almost an abstract format um, where the paint is running it's acrylics. So it's, you know, it is very loose and what i what i have come to do mostly is focus on the horse's eye the positioning of their ears and if you're a horse person you know you you can read those little gestures those little things and then by leaving some of the other elements um free. I let the paint run and it's going to run where it's going to run. And it creates texture where it creates texture. I think that allowing that medium to just kind of evolve is where you capture the energy. Like I said, I wasn't aware I was doing it. And how I became aware was I would have people walk into my studio and they would stop in front of painting. And all of a sudden I'd look over and they would be crying. I know that seems like an odd response, but there would be this very emotional response. And at first I was like, oh God, you know, what happened? And I'd talk to them, oh, it's fine. It just reminds me. And all of a sudden they they jump into a story about, you know, this horse reminds me of whatever the event was, a particular horse they had or time, or it makes me feel this way. And there would then become this engagement, the storytelling between us of life experiences that are, they're common to each of us. Um, But by sharing that, those individual stories, I think you create some sort of empathy and understanding with your fellow person. Um, And it, it it is based in that relationship with the horse. That that's Mm -hmm. kind of your starting point. That makes sense. So to circle back to the whole question, I don't do it intentionally. I think it just happens.
1: Yeah. And it must happen because, I think un- like in your subconscious, you get it. Like you understand it, you make it with love. And so it comes off in the paintings and the strokes that you make and all this stuff.
0: Yeah. And I think the way I would describe that is mechanically, it can be a perfect picture and lack emotion. It's almost sterile, mm-hmm. you know? So sometimes when you look at something and you think, too, yeah, they've done a great job of copying what a horse looks like in real life, but, but it is emotionless. And, and I think that is the difference, not knowing a horse intimately versus taking and photocopying something that you've seen. So yeah, It's why I don't, it's why I don't pay bears or deer, you know, it's like I don't feel like I know the nature of that animal at a soul level.
1: Mm. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's impactful. And it's true. I, I think, uh horses do something to us it's it's exciting and it's fun and it's um I, I was looking through your paintings and i was just like mesmerized because you, you're right you, you the anatomy is awesome you the ears are great like the way that you draw and paint the horse is just it's it's very unique it's very your own style um which which is kind of um a question like how do you develop a style in 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 the artist world like how does <laughs> well, that happen
0: What is <laughs> about that. Cause I, I, I do, I knew I had to come up with something. It's like, once you get past the uh, mechanical, you know, learning to work in the mediums and things like that, then I think it's important as an artist, just like it is for anybody yourself, build a brand. Um, and, and my brand is visual. Um, so when people look at a piece of work and they go, Oh, that must be Tammy Chapman. We recognize that. So I, for probably three years, you know, flopped around in the studio. Like I said, I had time. I was Mm -hmm. sculpting. But what I learned with the sculpting was once you finished a piece in clay, the next step of the process is to ship it off to the foundry. And they do the molds and the metalwork. So there's this big lag time in between pieces where somebody else is bringing them to the finished product. So I figured, well, I'll... I guess I'll paint in in the meantime because a it's cheaper. I can go buy and it's a lot less. Like I can control the whole process from beginning to end. Right. So when I first started painting, it was like I'd paint something and I'd go, "Oh yeah, paint that." Mm, nope, not good. But my my studio is in a public space. It's at the Tryon International Equestrian Center. Oh, so wow. yeah. So when I'm there, a I'm surrounded by horse people, primarily hunter jumpers. We have actually did do a bunch of polo stuff because the wellington florida crowd comes up and and hangs there as well so they do a saturday night grand prix jumping type thing so the studio's open and i've got a paint on the easel and i'm trying to paint something that looks fairly realistic and but it's in acrylics so it was hot and the paint was drying out faster than it should and I'm talking to the people. I'm trying not to be rude. So I grabbed a spray bottle and I just reached behind me and misted the painting. And I over misted, and the entire painting kind of ran off the canvas. And I was like, "Oh, that's not good." Um, you know, and it was like not fixable in the moment. I came back the next day, and I was like, "Oh, it's kind of cool, kind of interesting." And and so I'm like, "Well, maybe I can fix it or finish it or something." And so. Just kind of playing with that, which was an accident, led me down this path. And so now I intentionally start every piece with just a wash of color in the background and I spray it and I've learned how to create texture and color. And then I wait until that dries and come back and look at the canvas and go, okay, what what do I see? Mm. You know, so a lot, most of the time I don't have a preconceived idea of what I'm going to paint because I start with this very abstract process in the background I also think that's a way of keeping the piece open for the energy that you're you're capturing somewhere out there in the atmosphere
1: yeah yeah do you feel like it's important to leave that space open for for like the energy and and you know leaving it almost open to the spiritual feeling right the, the impactful totally
0: thing. yeah yeah totally and i can see i can feel the difference like if i, I do a commission piece and i'm and i'm like oh, i'm on a deadline and you know and this and and especially if a person has been very specific you know i want this pose and i need this bridle and i need this to happen that to happen, it becomes then very structured and for mm. me once i go a very structured mode, with, with deadlines, I lose the energy. I lose the spontaneity of the piece, and I and and my opinion is the the work is not as good. So, mm. yeah, I'm pretty, I'm self critical. Uh, you know, I, most artists can pick apart at least a dozen things on everything they do that they don't like. But I, in particular, when I put put myself into a box with deadlines and parameters, I, I'm not usually happy with the end result. So. Mm.
1: that seems to be a like an artist an artist dilemma too right like you can't definitely you put an artist in a box work. that defeats the purpose of being an artist right it,
0: it's sort of yeah that is counterproductive for sure
1: <laughs> so tell me about um this this your sculpting this how you started with sculpting and it moved into painting vice versa like do you do you prefer a certain medium um, what's the biggest sculpture you've ever done? Uh, I'm, I'm curious now.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, like I said, I started with sculpture because I I think I I gravitated to, to the hands-on three-dimensional um, building process, which came from the sign world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what most people don't, I shouldn't say most people, what a lot of people don't understand is when you're doing a piece of bronze, The sculpture starts in clay and that that's all the artist. And then, then you go to this foundry process. And frankly, I didn't understand why I started. It was like, okay, now I've got this piece of clay. How do I get it into metal? Well, they have to do a silicone rubber mold. And from that mold, they pour a wax replica and the wax replica gets dipped in a ceramic slurry. And then the ceramic slurry gets fired in a kiln and then all the wax melts out and they pour the molten bronze in and then in a large piece Then they have to take all those pieces and weld them together i mean it is months of work and it's incredibly expensive mm-hmm. um so because you, you figure the, these are all skilled people they're artists most of them themselves so it's a partnership so when i learned that it was like, A, I'm not independently wealthy. And so I'm going to have to figure out a way to make money in the meantime. It's difficult to sell work that is conceptual. It's like, I I can do this and somebody, but have you ever done it? No, I haven't, but I know I can. So it was almost like you had to prove that you could do it, have those finished pieces before you started selling them. Um, so the painting was kind of filling in the space between those projects and because I didn't have a style, it took me a while but once I started painting that has I actually sell more paintings than sculptures now that I think that that my my style is unique enough to me you know you don't see you don't see a lot of it out there um, where a, a bronze sculpture, I kind of work in a realism type uh, fashion. There's a lot of really talented, capable people out there. Mm -hmm. So the competition in bronze is is steep um, and harder to differentiate yourself from the other artists out there. Mm -hmm. Um, The biggest piece that I have right now is six foot tall, six foot wide, and it's two horses standing head to toe. It's called tied at the hip. Mm-hmm. And then I have another piece that's called Piaf, which is also six feet tall. And are, are, then I've got a those, couple of.
1: Have those been but, sold, or?
0: Um, I sold three of the three of the P.F. pieces and three of the tied at hip pieces. Yeah, so they I've sold a couple of each. And then I have a little bit smaller one called Heels Down, and then I have it in uh, a four foot tie tall size as well as a smaller tabletop version of it. That one's actually the most popular piece. I've sold five of those to date.
1: Wow.
0: So yeah. That's and this this week I'm kicking off a new piece called the slide, which is a reining horse doing a sliding stop. So and it'll be about five feet tall. that's
1: pretty that's pretty big. It is
0: pretty big. You, You stand up and you're like, okay, it's at least chin high, probably, you know.
1: Yeah. It, it's uh yeah once you start getting into feet i feel like uh the sculptures, <laughs> the sculptures get pretty big
0: right 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 we're not we're not up to like 18 hand horse size yet because i'm just kind of like it requires a different space and a different set of um like just you figure if you're going to sculpt an 18 hand tall horse or bigger like twice size life you you have to be able to get all the way up to the ears and so scaffolding and ladders and 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 I'll be honest with you I have one really bad knee right now because I took a spill off my horse a year ago so <laughs> Monday I'm going to the orthopedic surgeon so ladder climbing is not on my list of favorite things right now.
1: Funny how uh like tactical logistics is what's keeping you from doing a 18 handhold. <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> like Uh, that's probably not as easy as it looks (laughs) you start to think about it and you think okay I've got to sculpt it like at the pole you know you got to make it you've got to make it uh accurate so in in a real life situation hopefully you can get that horse to lower its head enough where you can work ground level (laughs) but if that horse's head is up how do you see the top of its you know the pole or the tips of its ears you don't you have to climb a ladder yeah
1: yep. wow that's awesome um let's let's go back to like the very first painting or sculpture you sold like how did that feel like what's the when you first sell your first sculpture you're an artist you're like wow I'm, this is it this is what I'm gonna do like how does that feel
0: oh my gosh I have a story for you that I still look back and I chuckle to myself um And I'm going to drop a name, and we'll we'll see how far your reach really is. Okay. So um, So I go to the sculpture class, and I decide, okay, I'm going to do this for a living. So I moved to Tryon, North Carolina, because I've heard about this incredible equestrian facility that's being built. And they're going to host the 2018 World Equestrian Games, which I actually didn't know existed To be honest with you, I was like, (laughs) had you heard of that before? Like the Olympics of horses, right? Okay. So every four years, there's an international competition that includes all the seven disciplines. So it's like reining, endurance, jumping, dressage, driving, vaulting. I may have missed one in there, but there were seven disciplines and 70 countries are competing, right? So I'm kind of, I'm all geared up and I'm like, I'm going to do this. So I open up my studio and I start sculpting and I've got a couple of pieces and, <laughs> and the rent is like $3,000 a month. So not I'm like not cheap. So I, for me, I'm like, okay, I've budgeted, I could afford to do this for four months. So I've budgeted $12,000. And I'm telling you this because this is an important part of the story. Yeah. So I open up and I'm there for three weeks and people walk in, they walk out, they don't say a word, they get in, out, in, out. And I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, give it some time. By week, by week three, my head is going, you suck at this and you need to now consider a new job and this was a very bad decision and you are not good you know like all the negative totally. talk because three weeks in a vacuum and, and another, of them like freaking out so this gentleman walks in and they were doing test um test events for the world games in particular that week it was endurance mm. and uh so a gentleman walks in. He's clearly from the Middle East, and he walks through. And I, of course, I'm like, "Hi, how are you? My name's Jimmy. Blah, 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 blah. I'm an artist. If you see anything you like, it. I have any questions." And he, he turns around. He looks at me. He holds up one finger. Doesn't I? Uh, doesn't utter a single word. And he walks out the door. And I'm like, "That did not go well." Uh oh. <laughs> like, that was so bad. I'm like, "Huh? Not even a grunt." So the next day he comes back and I, I see him come in and I'm, I've am i decided I'm just not going to say anything. I'm going to say good morning and that's it. Yeah. And I let him and he wandered around the studio for a while and he walked out the door and I'm like, huh, okay. okay. <laughs> Still not the magic formula. Third day, he comes in with an entourage. He's got three or four people with him and they're talking in a, a language I clearly don't understand. And there's some pointing And then this gentleman walks up to me, whose name was Ed. And he says, the general would like to purchase several pieces of bronze. And I'm like, okay. So he picks out three pieces of bronze and the negotiation starts. And long story short, it's $12,000 of bronze that he picks out very first thing i've sold ever is a twelve thousand dollar sale wow. to the gen to the general of the Oman army head of the royal cavalry in Oman <laughs> like, I, I love to see your face right now it's that, that is exactly how i felt my mouth hanging open <laughs> and and what's even funnier is like i had to google oman to see where it was <laughs> I was, I was like <laughs> But so in the entourage was his chef de keep and um, the pilot of his private plane who needed to understand the weight and the measurements of the pieces of the bronze so that they could fly them back to Oman. So that was my very first sale.
1: So you made it. That's like when you realized like, that was the
0: universe that I took that as a sign from the universe that, that said, you're on the right path, don't quit. And it, it was like, it, it, it covered two. my red. I know, right? I'm like, I had never, ex- I didn't expect it. You know, what are the odds ever that somebody who, you know, North Carolina, I'm originally from Michigan, has, has the opportunity to meet the, the general of Oman and the head of the Royal Cavalry and engage. And, and after that, he spoke to me in English, by the way, so a whole other level of trying to figure out that but but yeah that that was that was my very first sale I'm glad you asked because I forget sometimes (laughs) good question
1: that's awesome Uh that's so exciting so um another question that you know keeps coming up in my head when we're talking about this is like the price how do you you mentioned there's like a lot of intricacies that come into a price and specifically an artist like how do you put a price on your creative right like on 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 that piece i'm curious like for you how how does that math work out like how did how did you like twelve thousand dollars it's a lot of money you know it's like how do you do that? yeah you could buy a yeah. horse or two <laughs> it depends on what discipline <laughs> oh
0: i know right well and i have a lot of people who say i would love that but i just bought a horse so i'm competing with that all the time
1: oh <laughs> um, uh, that's you know, actually quite funny
0: specifically Oh, it is. It's like, or more, more often I'm not competing with the purchase of the horse. I'm competing with the vet bills of the horse. It's like, I would love to, but some, yeah, some other mechanical thing has gone wrong. And yeah. So, um, in bronze specifically, the, there is a hard cost, just like, if you're building a car, it's like cost of materials, cost of labor equals X.
1: Mm. And so,
0: I take that number, that hard cost, and I multiply it by a variable to get to the number. And oh. I have to figure that um, if I work with a gallery to sell my work, um, a gallery typically takes forty to fifty percent of an artist's revenue. Really? I know. See, I brought. Yeah. So when That's you when you look at that. It's a lot, right? So um so you so you really have to understand in the sales process that you're going to lose 50%. I shouldn't say lose, your 50% of your sale price is commissioned to the galleries that sell your work. So I have been I have been kind of resistant to gallery representation because for a couple reasons. I enjoy the interaction with a client. Uh, I really You know, I want to know how my work impacts people. And without having that face-to-face, it's very difficult to gauge. Um, So, and I also want to make my work affordable enough so that, you know, more people can buy it than not. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in paintings, I, I guess to go back to your question, how do you figure the cost? I also have to look at it and say, in order to make a living at this and do it full time, I want to make X a month to cover my personal expenses and things like that. And so the variable with that is time, Mm -hmm. you know, in order to make whatever that number is, I have this many days and this many hours to do it. And there's one of me. So I, I have to be able to kind of budget my time and say, okay, if I sell this many pieces I actually have to produce this many pieces to get mm-hmm. to that. So it's taken me a while to figure that piece out. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Trial and error seems like the the name of the game there. What's that? Trial and error.
0: Trial and error, and understanding. You know how many things you can produce in in a, a particular time frame. Like I'm I'm getting ready to do a big event. Um, in Las Vegas called The Run for the Million. And mm-hmm. it's a three-day show. Um, it's tied to the whole Raining horse thing and the Yellowstone, Taylor Sheridan. Oh nice. so I've three <laughs> yeah I have three days and I'm one of the featured artists. So I need to have a body of work to take to that show. Mm-hmm. Um, you know so I've got X amount of time to produce the work. I've got to travel from North Carolina to Las Vegas and do all the setup. So I have to kind of figure out what those costs are. Mm-hmm. And then it gets priced accordingly. So um, my, my work, the paintings right now, I sell Usually, usually when you bring it all back down, it, I'm at like somewhere between 3 to $5 a square inch when I do a, a painting. Oh, wow. So yeah, that, that's kind of the easy math to doing it. But how I got to that 3 to $5 a square inch incorporates all that stuff I just told you.
1: Yeah, so, totally. yeah. Like it's almost like uh I didn't I never, I never even thought about thinking it thinking of it through like a real estate lens of a quarter inch is like, you know, that's how it's right. No. Yeah.
0: yeah, how much oh. is an acre of land? How much is a, an inch of a painting? Yeah. Right. It's daunting, but yeah, that is kind of the painting world that's how that tends to go.
1: Interesting. Um, so, who who do you who do you look up to as an as our, as an artist? What kind of artist inspire your work? Oh my-
0: there is a gentleman out there right now whose name is David Riley, and I am just completely enamored with his work. He was an illustrator, and then he got into fine arts, and he's, he's somewhere between uh, distorted realism. He, he paints in a very recognizable style, and I love the fact that he, his, his work is fairly monochromatic. He'll paint in black and white or sepia tones, and then every once in a while, dash of color. And then mm-hmm. his subject matter, it, it, we're similar in the sense that it's like, it's big and bold. And it's a like a single subject, like here's an elk, or he does some horse work, or he, here's an Indian uh, a portrait. And then very clean backgrounds. You know, I, I'm a fan of white space. I like the, you know, when I say white space, the negative space behind a subject versus mm-hmm. the typical uh, Western art, which is very illustrative with mountains in the background and trees and bears and fish and bubbling streams. And, you know, it's like, there's so much going on um, versus a much more contemporary feel. So I think David Riley is one of my, um, one of my idols right now. Um, There's a gentleman whose name is Ray Tigerman, who paints in a completely different style, all with a a palette knife. Um, And he does, uh, Indian Native American uh, work, bright colors. I, and he's a personal friend of mine, so we joke. It's like I have a color palette of about twelve colors I work with. Ray empties the entire crayon box and uses every one of them. Yeah. <laughs> so we couldn't be more different if we tried. But yeah. I, you know, I like his work, and I, I actually like him as an individual, which I think is the other piece of it. it is um, the relationship between artists and, and customer, I think it matters. I think that's a big piece of, of the puzzle, you know, it's like people always, in my opinion, buy from people they like given the opportunity, you know? Yeah. And I think the way that our world is going, where everything gets delivered to your doorstep in a box and, you wave at the Amazon drives away. I think we we miss out on that human interaction. Um, And so to me, that, I think the art world is one of those places where it's going to be very hard to transition those of us who do this into that kind of e-commerce buying system.
1: Well, it's interesting because the story behind the painting is often a huge value add yeah if you have a tammy Tappan painting in your house odds are it's like a centerpiece it's in your living room it's something that people you want people to see and yep and ask about right it's not just like a you don't just keep it in your closet it's not that kind of not you know it's not that kind of painting so when someone comes into your house wow this is an awesome painting and then the person who buys it says oh I met the artist at this art show in Vegas and she does this XYZ and and this is how she does this and the misting and the horse ear, whatever. Right. And so like.
0: yeah, That story becomes just a part of that, that collecting of art that, that definitely is the piece that I think um, makes it, it matters. It makes a difference. And as the artist, you know, you'll get, I'll get asked, uh, well, what's the story behind this painting? And I'm, sometimes it's very specific. Like, honestly, I dream a lot about pieces where, you know, it's this this horse's eye or this, that, and the next thing. But there are other pieces where I just am inspired by the image or, you know, but there isn't really a big story. Um, Mm -hmm. But what's interesting to me is that people will come up and they will create their own stories. And, and so I I try to be conscious of the fact that I don't want to influence their, their relationship with the painting. Mm -hmm. And uh, it became very clear to me. (laughs) It's funny. I was getting ready for a show last winter. I do the something called the celebration of fine arts in Scottsdale. And it's a three month long, Art show. It's seven days a week. It's grueling, but it's awesome. There's a hundred artists in this tent. So I spent about three or four months prepping for it, getting ready, different paintings. And so at home, the I I as I'm finishing paintings, I hang them on my walls. There's always a rotation of artwork in my house. So my husband, we're getting ready to pack up to go, and there was a painting called the herd, and I think it's probably in the shop prints section. So it's like five or six horses, and it was a big painting. It was eighty inches across, three feet tall, and it had hung in our dining room for a couple months. And we're packing up the van, and I take it off the wall, and he goes, well, what, "Where are you going with that?" And I'm like, what, "What do you mean? I'm putting it in the van." He's like, "No, no, 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 no! I love that painting," and he's. So I'm like, "Yeah, well." I'll paint you another one. And he's like, no, you don't understand. I get up every morning and I sit here and I look at the painting and he and he had named every horse in the painting. They had all different kind of like, and I had no idea this was going on. He's like, well, that one's looking over here because of this and that one's doing this. And this one's somehow related to the other one. And I was like, okay, crazy person, <laughs> put the painting in the van. But it was like, it hit me that it's like, he had a completely different interpretation of the painting than I did and had become emotionally attached to it because he had created relationships with these horses that I have no idea. And, and it was like, huh, that, that's interesting to me, you know, because I, I don't think I don't get to talk to people like that often. So I don't know why they're drawn to particular pieces, but Yeah. So that, that is my, that, that was an eye opener for me.
1: That's awesome. We now have a
0: print of it. (laughs) I'm
1: looking at the painting now and it's, I can see why someone could be so attracted to it and name the horses and like resonate with each one differently, different colors.
0: Relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And, And here's a funny story. And I probably shouldn't tell this to you or anybody else, but for me, that painting drove me crazy because when we hung it on the wall, no matter what I did, it always looked crooked. And you know, so finally I got out the level and I, I put the level on it. And I'm like, yeah, it's dead, dead straight. Well, my easel had tilted maybe one degrees when <laughs> I was doing the background. So the dripping was maybe one degree off and And so, and it was, it drove me crazy. Every time I look at that painting, I'm like, what is wrong with that? So, and I had never really paid attention in the past to, is the, is the easel level because that's the first step is this running paint. Well, guess Mm -hmm. what? If you're tipped and gravity happens, it's like sideways rain. So I had to have the the thing taken off the stretcher bar and restretched. It drove me crazy. Oh, (laughs) buddy. But that's how artists look at their own work. Uh, like, what is wrong with that? Why is that eye? Why is that ear wrong? What <laughs> I should have done uh, that one darker. Yeah,
1: makes sense. Yeah. But you know, I, when when you said that, it reminded me that in in a collector's point of view, or, or someone who who is a collector, often looks for like the the unique piece is the one that has an imperfection, right? Yeah, the yeah. One the one that like a collector if you're a coin collector and all of a sudden you find a dime that has like a, a little imperfection it's worth 10 times more than the one that I, I never thought
0: did. about that there you go
1: so i don't know maybe, it maybe
0: the... to, it's hand done and not machine created you know okay. it's not perfect where we all have flaws and make mistakes and i can pretty much show you something in every piece that yeah, <laughs> to support that.
1: It's definitely how you frame it and and the story behind it, right? It's like, well, yeah, of course it's not perfect. Um, I made it with my own hands. And this is right, it's right. gonna happen. That's awesome. Do you have a favorite piece of yours that you've ever painted? Or um
0: it it, it it kind of changes because I think my 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 style evolves over time. Right now there's a piece, it's not on my website, I haven't released it yet. It's called Trust. Mm-hmm. But you can find it on my Facebook and my Instagram, and it's a big palomino. Uh, and it's a huge painting. it's fifty five by sixty five It's tall. Um, and it's a it, this palomino, and it's just his demeanor um, and it's softer than some of my other pieces. There's some dripping, but a little less. and and so, Part of it is I've changed the canvas that I was working on to an unprimed canvas. So you know I'm playing a little bit around with the medium. So it's interesting how that it, it evolves over time. Yeah. And when I find a piece like that, I'll usually have one or two a year that I, I go, I'll step back from the easel and think to myself, I wonder who painted that. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's weird. Like you you step back and you're like, wow. I didn't see that coming or I didn't expect it, you know, the, yeah. and, and that, those are the ones where I feel like whatever that energy is, that spirit that's out there, almost it almost flows through you and, and you're just kind of the vessel hmm. for getting it out into the world. Um, and and th- those are the pieces I think that are my favorite because I, I, I acknowledge that, I don't think they're they're coming directly from me. I think they're coming through me. Wow, it's That's int- powerful. it's interesting. Go ahead, it's hard to interrupt.
1: No, I just said that it's it's a powerful it's a powerful way of seeing this um, this profession.
0: Yeah, I um I have been listening to a particular author for th- about three decades now. Her name is Carolyn Mace, and she does a she's written and she speaks on something with very energetic spirituality type of things but in one of her books i had read about the creative process and how creativity comes to us and it was interesting because if you are at all knowledgeable or curious about the the chakra system Mm -hmm. um you know energy in the body she had explained it which is like, you know, a creative thought comes in and enters through your your top chakra and you you know you think about it and then you start to formulate. So then you start to talk about it and and then, and then you move in and you become emotionally attached to it and then it gets down into your solar plex and where are the financial pieces of it? You know, can I afford to do this? Do I have the time to do this? And it's like, once it runs all the way through your chakras, if the answers are yes, 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 and it comes back out, then you own that. That, that becomes yours, that creative thought becomes yours. But if you get to a certain place and, and, I, and I see myself doing it, it's like, I'd love to do that 18 hand horse, but I think about it, I talk about it, and then I get to the financial, okay, how is that going to impact? Can I afford to do that right now? Then I look at the physical aspects of it and I'm like, oh, I think it's more than I can take on. And I let it go and and so the then what happens in her idea is that creative process goes to somebody else somebody yeah. else catches it out there in the universe and 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 may or may not take it on so you know like when i read that i went that's it that makes sense to me that that cuz that is exactly how i function it's like i'll get an idea i think about it i talk about it i i create in my head way more than i create in real time if that makes any sense like i'll do a painting and i'll pretty much have you know thought about it thought about it thought about it so when i step up the easel it's almost like it just comes out and Mm -hmm. it looks like oh gosh you know she did that in two days well no not really i've been thinking about it for two months or Mm -hmm. you know what i mean
1: yeah so yeah yeah wow so So you're you're in the business of uh of creating, of catching creative ideas from the universe. That's the business.
0: Yes. <laughs> that's, the, that's the business. That's the business. And then I do think that there is for artists when you're in a corporate job or you know it, it's a there's a a structure. You know, we work five days a week. We work forty hours a week. We work from eight to five. Whatever that structure is, and it's gotten a little bit looser post COVID or. But um, there's still parameters. With artists, I think that we have times where we're refilling ourselves creatively. And that may look like time in the pasture with your horse or riding riding through the woods or walking the dogs or traveling. I know I have a lot of artist friends that travel extensively after they do a big show because you actually have to fill yourself back up with the creative thoughts and energy. And then and then you go back in the studio. So so I would say most people that are creative live a very, very different lifestyle than people who you know work in the corporate world. It, yeah. We don't make sense. And that was a big <laughs> adjustment. Yeah.
1: yeah. What what an what an awesome story. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. I want to be respectful of your time too. Um where can people Absolutely.
0: find me? Um well you can find me on Facebook, Tammy Tappan art and instagram as well tammy tappan art and then my website tammy and these days you can find me in north carolina at the trine equestrian center
1: awesome well thank you so much tammy i'm going to make sure to link all of those to the show notes of the episode and make sure it's easy for folks to find them but um in the meantime i just like really want to appreciate it i love this conversation i hadn't chatted with an artist uh, yet, and so this is uh, another step in the right direction for, for
0: Awesome. Them. Well, I know lots of those people, and I wish you well on that big adventure there. I, I, you're a brave soul. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you so
0: That's much. Cool.